Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to Liturgical Libations and Lamentations. Here at Libations and Lamentations, we believe that all people are theologians, whether they like it or not. And as such, we hope that this podcast will help to refine and shape the theology of the Church toward a more articulate and orthodox expression. Welcome back, podcast listeners, to another episode of Liturgical Libations and Lamentations. I'm Jay Thomas, and I'm here with my co-host, A.J. Nolte. A.J., how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Now, if you're a follower of Liturgical Libations and Lamentations, you might have noticed that we've been on a short hiatus through the holy days of Advent, Christmas, and now the beginning of the Epiphany season, but we are back. So today is our first episode since the beginning of Advent. And it's a special bonus episode. So tomorrow, we're recording this on January 23rd, and I hope and intend to release this episode today as well on January 23rd. But tomorrow, the 24th of January, AJ and I, along with some other members of our parish, will be traveling to Washington, D.C. for the 47th annual March for Life. Um, So the March for Life is always held on the week of the 47th decision, or the 47th anniversary of the Roe versus Wade decision, which made abortion legal in the United States. And so we will be going up with the Anglicans for Life initiative from the Anglican Church in North America, and which, especially if you've never looked into Anglicans for Life or anything like that, is a incredible organization that promotes the sanctity of life, both from conception to natural death. And so today's episode will be focusing on those issues of sanctity of life. And so really, I think there are a couple of things we're going to do in this episode. First, we're going to talk about what is the Anglican Church of North America's position on the issues of abortion, euthanasia, and sanctity of life, and where does it come from? In other words, where does it come from in church history? Second, why does this matter so much? Why is it such an important issue? And I think I would say even the cornerstone and keystone issue of uh, really any type of full-spectrum Christian approach to social justice. And then third, how do we respond? How do we as Christians respond to the fact that while this is an issue where we need to be very clear and, and we need to speak truth, uh, it's also an issue where we're, we're dealing with people who are in a vulnerable situation, uh, and so we want to show love and compassion even in the process of speaking truth. And so I think those are kind of the, the main um, points of what we're going to talk about today. And so to kick us off, Jay, Um, Can you start by outlining what is the ACNA position on the issue of abortion and sanctity of life? Absolutely. So as Anglican Christians, we're going to take our doctrine from our catechism, uh, which is where we're going to go from. And the catechism is completely scripturally derived, as we've gone through multiple times in this course. Um, But the catechism is broken down to different sections, and one of those is the Ten Commandments. So in the commandment, on the sixth commandment, uh, we find God decreeing to the people of Israel, do not murder. And so the catechism goes down and breaks down, first, what is murder? Murder is the willful and unjust taking of human life. And then it says, why does God prohibit murder? God prohibits murder because every human being is made in God's image. All human life is sacred from conception to natural death. And it goes on, what other actions are considered murder? Genocide, infanticide, 
abortion, suicide, and euthanasia are all forms of murder. Sins of murderous intent, which include physical and emotional abuse, abandonment, willful negligence, and wanton recklessness. So, this is the Anglican Church North America's position. The position is that all human life is sacred from conceptual conception to natural death. And as God has told us not to commit murder, therefore taking life in any of these ways, whether it's abortion in the womb or euthanasia at the end of life, is going against the law of God. And it's something that we cannot do. Now, would you say this is something that Anglicans have discovered in you know, the 1950s or 60s or 70s as, as these issues started to um, come up? Or you know, is there a deeper historical grounding and, and grounding of this in Christian teaching that goes back further? Hmm. That's a good question. So I think we like to think in a completely self-focused way. Um, so in, in this context, that would be a, I currently live in this moment, so therefore these issues are new to my moment. Um, but the issue of life, the sanctity of life, is is not new at all, and neither is the church's teaching on it. Uh, as Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, in the Psalter, actually, over the last couple days, we've been reading in the you know early 100s of the Psalms that one of one of the things that God holds against the people of Israel is that not only did they turn to foreign gods, but what did those foreign gods ask of them? But they asked the sacrifice of their children. And God says expressly, I not only never commanded that of you, but I would never command that of you. And so, you know, this issue of the sanctity of human life goes all the way back to the beginning and is a groundwork of Christian theology. One of the earliest documents of Christian writing that we have is the Didache. And AJ, I think you were saying it's from the, we think it's from before the turn of the century, right? Yeah, or is it so, right after? So speculation is that it's between 50 and, one, uh, and 150 AD and probably um, in the earlier component of that, just because the Didache, the church that is talked about in the Didache doesn't have some things that by the 150s are pretty ubiquitous. So it's probably uh, fairly early. If it's not contemporaneous with the Gospel of John, it's very soon after. And we may even do a bonus episode on the Didache at some point um, later on just because it's such a fascinating and rich document about early Christian origins. And so the Didache says um, it's teaching actually on the Ten Commandments like our catechism does. You see there's nothing new under the sun. And it says there are two ways, one of life and one of death. And between the two ways, there is a great difference. Now this is the way of life. And it goes through the Ten Commandments. And it goes on to expound the commandment to do not murder and says, do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant. This is the way of life. So what we can draw from this is that abortion and infanticide were both big issues at the time in Roman culture. Uh, And in fact, they were. This was a a ubiquitous practice for the Romans. Uh, Particularly elite households would expose infants that were born defective in any way. Um, If there were girls that were born, they were often exposed because there was a preference for male heirs. This was seen as as beneficial. Uh, And this was a decision that was sometimes made by high-born Roman women, but was often made at the explicit direction of their husbands. A friend of mine who's a colleague here at Regent was telling me recently that he was reading a letter written by a pagan Roman husband, 
and by all accounts and, and based on what you could tell from that context he seemed like a fairly uh, loving Roman husband inquiring about his family inquiring about his kids and you know his wife and you know I hope you're well and oh by the way I've heard that you're pregnant again and so if it's a girl you can just go ahead and kill it uh, and so that's just the the mentality that you have in paganism so we have this idea now and I think it's, it's again that self-focus that Jay mentioned that abortion is empowering to women and that abortion is you know the reason Christians oppose it is because of this history of patriarchal oppression of women and you know the, the implication of that is well the pagans must have been really women affirming and you know the Christians were just telling them they couldn't have any fun and actually what you look as you look deeper in objectification of women is something that's a systematic part of the pagan sexual ethic and the idea that women are property to be disposed of by their fathers and husbands because if an unmarried woman gets pregnant then her father can basically tell her you will have an abortion uh, and that's what happens in, in Roman law so you know, by saying that women have equal respect to sanctity of life as men abortion is actually a radically pro-women um, our opposition to abortion is, is a radically pro-women statement and position by the early Christian church. And there's a reason that most of the early Christian feminists in the United States, Elizabeth, Katie, Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, etc., were pro-life because they still saw that link. Um, and I think that still is a link today. I, I don't buy into the argument that uh, the pro-abortion movement is a pro-women movement because I think you're putting oftentimes vulnerable uh, women in, in untenable position. Um, but, you know, that's, that's a, a bit of a uh, side topic, but what I can say is this is consistent. It's there in Christianity from the beginning, and it is seen as everyone, men and women, those who are perfect in body, those who are imperfect in body, have equal dignity because they are equally made in the image of God. Um, and as Christianity becomes a politically permitted religion, which it's making this stance as a persecuted church, as it becomes politically permitted, um, we'll start to see gradually over time this ethic of the sanctity of life and the image of God permeating the way Christians are thinking about issues of justice and reshaping that. But it starts with abortion and infanticide. Um, and the Didache is not the only source we have on this. There's a very early document called the letter to Diognetus, which basically means son of Zeus, so Joe Pagan, uh, where the author's talking about what makes the Christians distinctive. And he highlights this fact. The Christians don't kill or expose their infants. Uh, and it's almost a direct paraphrase from the Didache in that letter that's written maybe another century later. So this is one of the earliest, clearest, attested social teachings of Christianity that we have from a church, uh, a time in which the church is itself a tiny, highly countercultural, persecuted minority. And and going back, you know, the reason this is Christian theology, not just Anglican theology, but Christian theology, is because we truly believe that mankind is bestowed with the image of God. And as, as Anglicans, we're, we're sacramental. And being sacramental means to understand that God reveals his spiritual grace through physical means. And the, the greatest sacrament that you and I can encounter on a daily basis is the person next to you. That person who is a physical manifestation of the grace and image of God. And so all of humanity, every person you meet, from their conception until their natural death, bears that image of God to such an extent that our ultimate hope as Christians is to be raised in our bodies, in our flesh and blood, because that is the incarnational aspect of Christianity and the Christian hope. 
And so this is, this is vital, and it's a linchpin to our entire theology. We have to understand all of life as sacred, regardless of how we even view that individual life. And I think at this point, I want to turn over to AJ again. And AJ, can you tell us why this issue for you is especially personal, this idea of sure. all life being sacred and having an intrinsic dignity that goes beyond just the, what our culture might say it deserves. Yeah, thanks, Jay. There, there are two reasons it's personal for me. One is because the field I work in is the field of political science. And the other is because I am somebody who's born with a genetic disability. I'm uh, visually impaired, I'm blind, as we mentioned in a previous podcast, and um, that is for genetic reasons. And so both of those make this a very personal issue. Um, and, and the third reason I would say is also because of um, you know the experience that my wife and I had, which I might get into for a minute if, if we have time. So. Let me start with the political science point. One of the most important things that we can do as Christians is promote a just society. Uh, you know, the idea of, of a more just society and a more just order is sort of at the heart of Christian politics. And there's a lot of discussion today about social justice from a Christian perspective. And one of the points that you often hear from folks is, well, we're emphasizing abortion too much at the expense of other issues that are important, racism, poverty, uh, the environment, immigration, uh, what have you economic inequality. Now, what I want to say is two things. Number one, if we are talking about abortion at the expense of those other issues, then we are doing it wrong as Christians. Um, and I think that we need, we need to be able to substantively and systematically address racism, inequality, the environment, immigration, all those issues. And if we're not doing that, then shame on us as Christians. But what we cannot do is disaggregate them and then, and then go the opposite direction and say, well, we need to privilege all of these issues above abortion. And not only can we not do that because abortion is, is you know, a really, really important social issue, but because as a practical matter, if you're going to build, and this goes back to what Jay said about the Christian theology, if you're going to build a robust Christian understanding of social justice, of a just society, you cannot do that on any foundation that is not an ethic of the sanctity of life. If you don't have an ethic of the sanctity of life and the sanctity of all life, then you can't have a good position on racism. You can't have a good Christian position on fighting poverty. You can't have a good posi Christian position on addressing issues of immigration, environmental justice, economic inequality, whatever it is. Because fundamentally, Christians begin with the understanding that every human being is made in the image of God. And you can't fight poverty if you don't recognize that fighting poverty begins with restoring the dignity of the poor, which is something that Christians have understood since the time period of the Cappadocian Fathers, people like Basil of Caesarea, who writes about fighting poverty, but who does so in this context of an imago dei, image of God concept, right? You cannot combat racism, which is the idea that some people are more valuable than others because of the skin tone with which they happen to be born, uh, and because of possibly some uh, genetic and phenotypic variations. How are you going to be able to address that and say it's wrong if you're not basing your argument on a sanctity of life premise that says that everyone is equally made in the image of God. Because what other premise do you have? Uh, how are you going to address economic inequality? Um, how are you going to address issues of immigration and migration and justice for those who are outside of uh, the national boundary? Because if you don't have a sanctity of life ethic, your ethic is going to be based on the idea of quality of life. And quality of life essentially says, do these people have the maximum opportunity to enjoy life, to have the good life? But the good life is always going to be something that you define. There's no way you can step away from that. 
there's this, a political theorist named John Rawls who comes up with this idea of the original position that you can sort of step out and objectively assess where you would want to be born. That's nonsense. And we know that's nonsense. And basically anybody who knows anything about postmodernity now will tell you that's nonsense. You know, not often you'll hear me agree with postmoderns, but they're right on this one. You can't just abstract yourself from your circumstances. So if we have a quality of life ethic, inevitably, you're going to be biased to people whose lives look more like yours. There's just no way of getting around it. And so it's going to be, you're going to value more those who are the most like you. This is also an innate, natural human instinct. It's our tribal instinct. We are, in a sense, wired by this, uh, this way. And sin, original sin, dictates that we're going to act this way. So both Christianity and science agree that, we're, that our natural tendency, if we start having a quality of life ethic, is that we're going to privilege the experiences and the conditions and the people that are the most like us. And we can't have this universal conception of social justice as Christians if we do that. And that ties into the second point, which is where I mentioned at the beginning that I, I'm somebody who has a genetic disability. I was born blind with a very rare uh, form of, uh, of genetic blindness called Leber's congenital amaurosis. And one of the things that you find if you're somebody who's blind, particularly if it's genetic and people know that, is they start asking you, well, are you planning to have children? And there's a little bit of an edge to that question because it's, are you planning to have children because they might end up like you, right? And that would be terrible. Um, and so, you know, there's an aspect of this and people sometimes do it without even like really realizing that they're doing it. If you're somebody who's got a genetic disability and you're listening to this, you've heard this, right? You just have, and you probably recognize it at the time. And where does this come from? It comes from this idea that if you have kids and they have a disability, they're just not gonna have as good a life as anybody else would. Well, why? Because I don't have a disability. And as somebody who's not disabled, I think that would be terrible. And I don't know how you do that. So, you know, naturally, I'm just going to assume that that person is going to have a lower quality of life. That's not an assumption that you can make because maybe you can make it from a quality of life perspective, right? And everybody's going to do it. But when it comes to sanctity of life, that doesn't matter, right? And so what we find with abortion is that when you start having this idea that there's not such a thing as sanctity of life, people will start to say for the good of society we need to improve humanity and how are we going to improve humanity by getting rid of people that are unfit and we've been down this road before in the united states seventy thousand people in the 20th century were forcibly sterilized because of genetic disabilities um the national socialists in germany got their laws on forced sterilization from states here in the united states um eugenics is a very real thing we often, as sort of pro-life advocates, people point out Margaret Sanger was eugenicist. She was, but she was not alone. She was in good company. All of the great and good at the time, former presidents, um, Theodore Wilson, uh, or three, sorry, Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, George Bernard Shaw, H.G. Wells, Helen Keller, herself a disabled person, eugenicist. Um, and so this was the accepted consensus at the time. So when you step away from sanctity of life and, and, and toward quality of life. And when, particularly when you do it as a Christian, pastors were not immune from this. There were Protestant ministers that were eugenicists. When you step away from sanctity of life and toward quality of life, inevitably you will start moving away from a universal concept of social justice, and you will not be able to have a full-spectrum Christian approach to any of these issues. I would say the other reason that it, it, it's been personal for me um, recently is because some of the laws that have come out um, extending abortion uh, to the moment of, of birth, really, uh, to, you know, 40 weeks, 
um, you know, my daughter was, was born premature uh, at 33 weeks, three pounds, 11 ounces. Um, and, you know, that was not something that we discussed or we had to discuss, but it was touch and go for, for a minute um, at that moment of pregnancy. Uh, we, we were very concerned, especially as a young couple, not really knowing what the medical aspect of this was going to be. And so they ask you questions. They ask my wife questions when she's <laughs> on all of this medicine. If it's a choice between saving you and saving the baby, what do we do? So I've been there, you know, I was in that hospital room with her. I know what it's like to be in those, those decisions. It's very personal. But I also was there to hold my tiny, tiny little daughter. Three pounds, 11 ounces is really small, guys. Um, and so I know what, what that kid at that age looks like, what a 33-weeker looks like, because I actually, you know, got to hold her at that. And so it's personal for me also because these are not just abstract um, issues. These are not just an abstract concept of, of a fetus. Like, that's, that's a baby that I held. And so I would say for me, it's, it's a very, very much a personal issue. And on the note of personal issue, we also want to say especially that we, we truly recognize that this has become a sin of our society and it's placed women especially in a terrible position. We recognize that if you're listening to this um, and you're considering an abortion or you've had an abortion, that like AJ and his wife, you were an incredibly vulnerable place in your life. And we recognize that our society has honestly given you lies. It's told you that the right outcome is to value your life over the life of someone else, to value your quality of life over the intrinsic worth of someone else. But we want to say that we recognize that it's a vulnerable position and that no woman who walks into an abortion clinic is looking for an easy way out, but rather feels that she has no other way. And so as we, as we conclude today's episode, and we reflect on the fact that AJ and I will be going to DC. We're not going to DC to protest. You know, this this was a judicial issue, not a legislative or an executive issue. And there's no easy outcome judicially from this. But what there is, is there's prayer. And what does prayer achieve? But it achieves the closing of abortion clinics, the opening of pregnancy centers. Prayer achieves adoption and bringing new life into families that can't have life themselves. And so if you're listening to this and you are in that vulnerable place, we want you to know that we're praying for you and that tomorrow as we march, we are praying for you, that you would know that you are loved and that the God who values the life in your womb also values your life. Let us pray. Most merciful God, whose wisdom is beyond our understanding, deal graciously with those who mourn, who are in challenging situations and who feel that their life is hopeless, that their situation, that there's no way out. For those vulnerable mothers who can see no alternative. Lord, we ask that you would surround them with your love, and that they may not be overwhelmed by their circumstances, but have confidence in your goodness and strength to meet the days to come. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.
This has been Liturgical Libations and Lamentations. We hope you will join us next time as we continue to weep and imbibe throughout the church's year.